Good morning. My name is Dan Song, and I'm one of the pastors here at Restoration. It's good to be together on this Sunday to worship together and to uh, gather as God's people, forgiven uh, not because of anything that we've done, but because of Jesus' righteousness and what he's done for us. So as we gather together, we've been in this series in 1 Samuel called King of Kings. And the reason we named that is because whether the people of God had kings or not, human kings or not, that God was always going to be their king, their faithful king. And we've seen that through the first four chapters of this book. But last week, or not last week, uh, two weeks ago, we took a break last week after General Assembly, but two weeks ago, we started sort of this little mini narrative in chapters four through six that look at the Ark of the Covenant. If you recall, I sort of use this word that we're looking at lessons on archaeology, right? The Ark of the Covenant. And uh, one of our kids got a real good kick out of that. But we're in that section where we're learning lessons about the Ark of the Covenant of God. If you recall what it was, it was this wooden box that was covered in gold. And it represented God's presence for the people of God. But last week we saw how they took that and treated God and the Ark like a lucky rabbit's foot. And what did God do? God disappointed them. He would rather disappoint them than be treated like a lucky rabbit's foot, like a lucky charm. Because he wants a real relationship with his people. That he would rather disappoint them and also suffer his own shame and be exiled for the sake of his people. And so today what we're going to see as we continue these lessons on archaeology is actually see that God truly not only is one who can't be treated like a lucky rabbit's foot, but he desires to be known that he is second to none. And that's what I've titled today's sermon, that, that God is second to none. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So let me pray for us as we dive into God's word. Lord, we give you thanks just for your faithfulness. As we've looked at this book, whether it's barrenness, uh, whether it's defeat, Lord, you are always faithful and you work out for all. You always work out the good for those who love you. So, Lord, I pray that you would do that good work now as we come and look into this fifth chapter of 1 Samuel, that you would speak to us and give us ears to hear and eyes to see so that we might be transformed by the gospel. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I thought about this story here that we're looking at in chapter 5, I thought about rivalries. Now, when you think about sports, there's so many different rivalries, right? When you think about basketball, they don't play together, but you think about Jordan or LeBron, who's the greatest. When it comes to tennis, uh, we think about Federer as the Wimbledon championship is today. You think about Federer versus Nadal. When you think about other sports like um, the game, the weekend game that's going on, the Cards versus the Cubs, even though I think neither team is actually any good right now. But you think about these different rivalries that have happened, maybe sibling rivalries, right? Between brother and brother or sisters. There's all these different rivalries, but it also takes, it happens also geopolitically with different conflicts. We think about back in the Cold War, it was the USA versus uh, the Soviet Union. We think about right now everything that's been happening between Israel and Palestine. 
But there's also just trivial rivalries that also happen, right? Things like smartphones, iPhones, or the Android. This past week, our family was in Michigan. We took lots of pictures, and we sent a picture of our kids to one of their uncles, and the uncle wrote back, nice picture, even if it was on an iPhone. I mean, just little things that we always seem to always want to one-up one another. And here in this story this morning, there's a rivalry. I alluded to it two weeks ago when we looked at chapter 4, but there's this rivalry between Israel and Philistine. That there has been this historical rivalry between these two nations, even back as far as Genesis, between Abraham and the Philistines. We see that in Judges with Samson. And even if you look forward later in, in, in 1 Samuel, you see David versus Goliath. And here, the Philistines were their, their arch nemesis. It was like Luke versus uh, Luke Skywalker versus Darth Vader. This has always been their arch nemesis, this rivalry between Israel and the people of Philistia. And what we see today is not just these two nations, but it goes deeper than that because what they represent is the gods. The, the God of Israel versus the God of the Philistines. Yahweh versus Dagon. And there is this rivalry that happens here. And as we look at this story, what we see is there's actually no rivalry at all. You might want to conjure up a rivalry, but what God shows us through this story is that God is second to none. And that is a good thing for us to hear as we think about the different idols that we wrestle with in our own lives. And we're going to see this, that God is second to none in two ways. First, through God's supremacy, but secondly, God's independence. So first, let's look at God's supremacy. The first reason why there is no rivalry between God, Yahweh, and Dagon is because of God's supremacy. When the Ark of the Covenant is taken captive by the Philistines, what do they do? The first thing that they do is they put the Ark of God into the house of Dagon. And it's interesting, the way they describe it in verse 2 is that it's set beside Dagon. The Ark of the Covenant is right next to Dagon. And this was actually very normal and typical in the ancient Near East. That whoever won the battle, that nation's God was stronger and more powerful. And whoever lost, their God was weaker. But nonetheless, because it was a polytheistic uh, time, and these gods or these nations believed in many gods, they would put the weaker God in the same room with the stronger God because they were all supernatural, and even a weaker God could still help the nation win other battles and become successful and more powerful. And that's what we see here. The God who is defeated, Yahweh, is next to the victorious God, Dagon. But what happens the next morning when these people come into the house of Dagon? Dagon is fallen, prostrate to the floor, in many ways, worshiping Yahweh. Now, could it have been an accident? Maybe. But the next morning, what happens? Not only is Dagon fallen again on the floor, but his head is chopped off and his arms, his hands are chopped off as well. 
signifying that this is no longer just an accident, but Dagon, made of stone, is worshiping the God of Israel, Yahweh. This is an amazing, significant thing because the head symbolized wisdom and the hands symbolized power. And what we see here is that in many ways, Dagon is having the godness being knocked out of him by Yahweh. That's the way Davis, a scholar, writes it. He says, what we see is that Dagon is having the godness being knocked out of him by Yahweh. God is not just one of many gods. He's not just a powerful God. He is actually second to none. And not even Dagon is worthy to be in the presence of the one true living God. He is supreme over all. And what this pictures is Yahweh going into their home court, Dagon's home court, taking him captive and killing him. This is the picture that we get. While Dagon could not even stand himself up, Yahweh captures him, sentences him, and executes his rival. Isn't that what we see throughout all of Scripture? God will not and cannot, will not condone any other gods or idols to be worshipped other than himself. Now you might be thinking, what does idols actually mean? Aren't we past that time? We don't worship these carved out stones. But I think one way to think about idols is that idols is anything that we look to for meaning, for significance, for power, or for control. Anything other than the one true God of the Bible that we find meaning and significance in. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he says it this way, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel worth, would feel hardly worth living. It could be things like your career. It could be your marriage. It could be your freedom, right? It could be your love for your nation. It could be your sexuality. It could be our comforts. All these are good things, but when we make them our ultimate to find significance other than in God, Yahweh, they become idols. And what God shows us throughout Scripture, not just here in chapter 5, God is supreme over all. That even Dagon, a stone carved out by these Philistines, worships Yahweh. These are the things that when confronted by God, come toppling, crashing down to show us God's supremacy. Idols will begin to crumble in your life when you confront them before the Lord. You will find them dissatisfying, disappointing. You will actually notice their ineffectiveness, the frustration, the impotence of the idols that you worship. Their hands and their heads will be cut off. But here's the question I have for us. Are we willing to confront our idols before the Lord? 
Are we willing to allow God into the house of Dagon or actually for us into the heart that are full of idols? John Calvin said this, a French reformer and our church father, he said, the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us is from his mother's womb an expert in inventing idols. We will make so many things the ultimate significance for us. But what we do is we keep them away when we come on Sunday mornings. We hide them. We don't want those things to confront our God because they mean so much to us. But what we see here is when God comes into the house of Dagon, we see that God is second to none. Are we willing as followers of Jesus, willing to bring our idols before him? That's why the confession is so important, the com- our corporate confession and silent confession? Are we willing to bring the things that we think will bring us significance and meaning and control and power? Or do we hide them away and and keep them in the shadows so that God can't touch those things? And here we see that God is truly supreme over all things. But the second thing we see here is not only that God is truly second to none because of God's supremacy. But second we see here is that God's, of God's independence. Look at what we see in this story compared to two weeks ago. Remember what happened? God's people think that they could treat God like a lucky, lucky charm. And what do they do? They take the Ark of the Covenant and they think they could win in the battle. But they get slaughtered. 34,000 people die. And, and, and the Ark of the Covenant, which represents God's presence, is impotent. They don't win. They lose. But now con- contrast that to what happens in this story. The Ark of the Covenant, without the people of God there, God is able to bring destruction and victory when the people of God could not do that. And we, we see here that it is God who is independent, who does not actually need us to defeat the Philistines on their home court without any help from the people of God. And we see this in so many ways in the story. Look at verse 3. Dagon, this powerful God who can't even be picked up himself, needs his own little minions to pick him up, right? This stone that is carved out to be an idol that they worship, falls on the floor. And that in that morning, what do they do? They have to pick up this idol and put him back up on the ledge. Whereas we see with God, God doesn't need any of our help. He is independent of us. God doesn't need us. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't long for us and desire us and want us. But God is absolutely sovereign. Can a God be a God if, you are, if a God is dependent on his creatures? No way. And we see here God is independent. He does not need us. But he does want us. And in verse 6 again, what you see here is that it seems that the ark and Israel's God, Yahweh, has fallen in the hands of the Philistines. But what actually happens? It's actually God's hands that have fallen heavy on the Philistines. Read verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. God doesn't need us to have victory. 
He is truly second to none because he does not need his creatures to to be able to find success in battle. And what you see here is the people, the Philistines, begin to get all these tumors. Now some scholars argue whether they were it was the bubonic plague because in chapter 6 we'll see next week that there were rats and mice that are mentioned. Others actually say for, for comedic relief that it might have actually been hemorrhoids, that it was hemorrhoids that caused them to fall ill and many die. Whatever it was, it was some kind of tumor all over their bodies. And they're scared and frightened because many are dying and many are growing ill. And what happens? First, this Ark of the Covenant is in Ashdod, this great city. But then what do they do? They're so terrified and scared, they take it to the next city and they say, we don't want it here. And they take it to Gath. And Gath experiences all of the tumors and all of the plagues and death. And what do they do? They're like, get this thing out of here. And where do they send it? They send it to the city of Ekron. But before he gets into Ekron, what happens? The people of Ekron go to the city limits, and they've already heard all the terror that God has created. And so what do they say? They say, this thing is not coming into our city. And we'll see next week, they want to send it back to the nation of Israel. So what we see here is God is revealing that he doesn't need the, his own people with or without us, he will accomplish his will always. He is not like Dagon that needs his little minions to pick him up and put him back on the pedestal. But what we see here is a God who is completely independent and sovereign to accomplish his wills. This is so, so important for us to remember. Because the second we begin to think that God needs us, that we are so important to accomplishing the will of God in the world or even in your neighborhood or here at this church, we begin to start playing with fire. I was reminded of this just recently. There was a church in a different city, different state, where they experienced an abuse case that happened 20 years ago. And instead of the church and the leadership and pastors Instead of sorrow and repentance and condemning the wickedness of that act that was committed by this pastor 20 years ago, there were pastors that actually said, if I, was, if I knew about this 20 years ago, I might actually not have said anything because of all the good that came out of this church 20 years after. And that's just pure evil to say something like that. How can a pastor say that if I knew about this 20 years ago, I probably wouldn't have reported it because of all the good that came out of this church in the last 20 years? And as I thought about this and thought about this, this story, I realized it begins with this small seed that's planted in our minds that says, God needs me. That because God needs me, I could forego the evil and the abuse that happens in the church. If I ever get to a place where I think the church here at Rescom needs me, please smack me in the face. God is independent. He does not need us. 
with or without us, he will always accomplish his will. And that is why he is truly second to none. Now God, while I say God doesn't need us, he loves us and wants us. There's a difference. He doesn't need us, and yet he wants us and is committed to us. Why? Because of his covenant, steadfast love that says, even when the worst is known about you, I will love you, and I will call you my own. That's true love. That's why a parent's love still falls so short of true, the true love of the Father in heaven. I absolutely love my kids, but truth be known that when you actually search my heart, I need them. I need them for significance. I need them for my own affirmation and identity. And that's why the love of God is so profound and so otherworldly. There's nothing like this kind of love from our Father in heaven. So that's why we can actually serve God in so many different ways, not because he needs us, but because he graciously invites us to partake in his mission, serving the poor, pursuing justice, repenting of our idols, caring for the sick, loving the enemy. These are the things that we are called to do. But here's the comfort, even when we fail atrociously, we know that God still works irrespective of whether we do it or not. And when we succeed, we know that it's because of God who has done it because he is independent and does not need anyone because he is God. He is second to none. So what does that mean for us this morning as we close? Think about these Israelites. If there's anyone that we are to identify with, it's the Israelites, not anyone else in this story. They got beat. They got slaughtered. They went home with their tails between their legs. God has been exiled. They just lost everything. And yet, what are they called to do? To wait patiently with hope that God will work out all things for the good of those who love him. To wait patiently that even when God is seemingly crushed and defeated, his supremacy, his independency, his sovereignty is enough to show the world that he is second to none. We are to trust and persevere like the Israelites. To trust that even when God looks defeated, he will be victorious. We don't know the timing of each action that God will take. Look at this story. It was seven months that God was exiled. Seven months in Philistia. It was three days in the tomb where God was dead. And who knows on what timeline he will work in our culture and in our time. But what we see is that God calls us to wait patiently that even when things seemingly seem defeated and broken, God in his supremacy and his independency will work out all things because he will be victorious. I mean, isn't that what we come to the table for each and every single week? This table for us this week symbolizes victory. That when God was dead, 
Satan probably relished in that. He thought he was victorious. But just like Ashdod, the city of Ashdod, just like Dagon, Satan confronted Yahweh and was defeated and crushed. His head was crushed like Dagon's. And Jesus rose from the dead victorious because God is second to none. He is supreme. He is independent. And whether we, he uses us or not, he will accomplish his will. That is hopeful for people like us. Whether it's Dagon, whether it's Baal, whether it's the Roman gods, or whether it's in our moment today in secularism, or whatever it is, when we might feel like we're so discouraged and hopeless, we can wait patiently because God truly is second to none and he will be victorious. And so what do we do? We're called to wait by the tomb and wait for the resurrection and know that God truly is second to none. There is none like him. And we could wait with hope, trusting that God will deliver us and deliver his people and bring all the peace and shalom in this world that we all long for, both in our hearts, but also in this world. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you, Lord, that you truly are second to none. We confess that we doubt that many times. We believe other than that, through the things that we love, the things that we worship. But Lord, I pray that this morning you would reorient our hearts as we come to the table to know that you truly are second to none, that your supremacy, your independence, your sovereignty, Lord, would give us hearts that will long to bring our idols before you, to repent and know, Lord, that you truly are the one who should reign and rule in our hearts, and you are the one who rules and reigns in this world. So, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us now as we come to the table to know, Lord, that we can worship you all the days of our lives. Help us to do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.